Amen. Please be seated. Before we read our text, let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Our Father, we, we thank you that your throne of grace, we are invited to come and throw ourselves to you and to know that because of the redeeming work of your son, that we are not just accepted begrudgingly, but we are welcomed gladly and we are delighted in deeply. So, Father, I pray that as we look this morning at your word, and as we study it and hear uh, your voice speaking as it does by your spirit through your word, would you do what you alone can do? Would you encourage those of us who feel, feel our struggles deeply this morning? Would you rebuke and challenge those of us who maybe are caught up in our pride? And would you meet us and give us exactly what we need this morning? Lord, we trust you. We look to you. We have nowhere else to go. And we look to you this morning and ask that you would feed us, ask that you would bless us, ask that you would encourage us, ask that you would comfort us, ask that you would be with us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Our parable this morning that we're looking at is from Luke 13. And it's a strange one. Um, It's about a broken fig tree, a barren fig tree. And I want to read it for us. And I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about it through the lens of both our impatience with ourselves and with one another and yet God's patience with us. So let's look at Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put in manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I was thinking this parable always makes me think of one of the strangest stories out of my childhood. So growing up, my grandfather and my father farmed. Uh, They farmed cotton and corn and soybeans. And my mom's parents also kind of were amateur farmers. They had a little garden, not a little garden. They had a pretty decent-sized garden where they did all kinds of tomatoes and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of fruits and, and vegetables. I got, not fruits, really just vegetables. And um, I remember being over at their house. We went over, we spent a lot of time. Every Sunday we would go to their house. My, my grandmother, my Mimi, was the best cook that I've still ever known. Um, and, of course, didn't write down any of her recipes for us to, to replicate. We think she went to the grave pretty proud of that because they were hers. Um, but I remember being, maybe around 9 or 10, and I was fascinated about, you know, I also got with my dad to the farm, and I was fascinated by the farming life, but I was with my mom's parents, and somehow we were having the old-school popcorn that you pop in the pan, and I just had this thought. And I asked my RT and Mimi, I said, what if we planted this popcorn? Would it grow corn? And they were like, well, let's call your, your grand, other grandfather, see what he says. And he was like, no, I don't think that's going to work. Maybe it'll do something, but it's not worth trying. And I was kind of crestfallen. But then my mom's parents said, well, let's just try it. And so for the next weeks, months, we, we planted it and they would water it. And then what would you know? 
I don't, I still don't know what really happened if they actually like planted the popcorn or just told me they did, but whatever happened, it was a miracle to me because up, up out of the back behind their shed, here comes this stalk of corn. And I think about that story because I think about, not about the corn as much, but I think about the patience and gentleness of my mom's parents with me. You know, I think it's good for us to start this morning thinking about who has it, who has changed or formed your life because of their patience and kindness toward you that yields fruit in our lives. And what I want to do this morning is just two things that I think this strange parable that Jesus is doing with his disciples. The first part, there's two parts. I just first want to focus on the violence of our impatience. And then secondly, I want to think about the patience of God's grace. So let's start first with the violence of our impatience. Jesus tells his disciples this story shortly after two important moments. One is in Luke 9.54, where James and John ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire to destroy that small Samaritan village that had rejected their ministry. And then the other is in actually our, our chapter, Luke 13. The disciples are, are doing that gossip decide, disguised as concern that we often do as Christians as they tell Jesus about these Galileans who Pilate had murdered and then mingled their blood with the sacrifices. And, you know, we do this as Christians, right? We do that thing where it's gossip in the form of a prayer request. And Jesus sharply rebukes them both times for their lack of grace. And he essentially says to them, do you think that these people that you feel better than, do you think that you really are better than them, more worthy than them? And then he tells them the strange little story about a barren and broken and about to be cut down fig tree. And it goes like this, a man who owned a vineyard for wine had planted a little fig tree in his vineyard for his own personal pleasure. But he's frustrated because three years in, it has not produced a single good fig. And so he goes to the farmer, the vine dresser of his vineyard, the man in charge of keeping his vineyard fruitful. And he says, enough, cut this stupid thing down. It's taken up space. It's a total waste. And where the owner has a response of frustration and anger and despair, the vine dresser responds instead with patience and gentleness and says, why don't you give me just a little time to fertilize it and to care for it and to nourish it. And then in a year, which is a long time, let's see where it is. That's why I think the first thing this parable highlights is the violence of our impatience, both with others and with ourselves. First, with each other. Here's the convicting question for me. How many people in my life get my anger, quiet anger, crock, I like to call it crock pot anger, not powder keg anger, but like that simmering, just kind of their anger? Our frustration, my indifference, my apathy, my judgment, instead of my love and my attention and my care. You know, I always think when Jesus, you know, when he says to the disciples, how will the world know that we belong to you? And he says, they will know that you belong to, be, to me by your love for one another, by your love for others. And I'm afraid in my own life, I'm, I'm maybe more known for my quiet judgment 
or withdrawal or apathy or indifference. Yeah, I had this moment. I mean, this plays out in my family all the time, right? We have four kids, um, three, two true teens, which has been a a fun ride, and one preteen and one nine-year-old. And Friday, I was having one of those days where it was just a hard day. Um, Got some hard news, just about fundraising kind of things, and you know, you know how. I mean, I don't have to. I don't think I have to tell you how days can spiral where we just get in a funk. And it was strange how it started. You know, sometimes I'm thankful by God's grace. Like Alyssa started the day in a funk and I was kind of able to, to love her and listen to her. And then maybe she just passed it on to me. I don't know. Because then it came to me. And by the time I got home, I'd gone to be with friends in Greenville. And by the time I, I got home, I was in one of those moods where I was just snapping, you know, biting heads off. And it happened both with Sadie as she called her brother, you know, a word that I thought she called to me. And so I, you know, I, I was proud of myself pretty calmly said, if you ever call me that again, you know, this is spanking time. And then she's crying because she's like, Dad, I didn't say that to you. I said it to your brother. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's still not okay. But, <laughs> and then same with my son. I mean, we were trying to figure out, I mean, I hit 40 and I've, I've realized my, my impatience with my parents with technology, that's coming for me. So I was trying to figure out how to mirror something from my phone under the TV. And Ash, my son, was like, let me, Dad, I can do that real quick. I was like, son, I told you to just go to bed. Go. <laughs> and he's, you know, runs upstairs, not crying, but pouting. You know, we have such impatience with one another. It's hard to, to give our love and give our give our love patiently and and our kindness and gentleness, we struggle. There's a quote that is convicting around this for me. It's by a guy named Eugene Rosenstock. Who's he? He says, the greatest temptation of our time is impatience. In its original, in its full original meaning, refusal to wait, undergo, suffer. We seem unwilling to pay the price of living with our fellows in creative and profound relationships. But the greatest temptation of our time is impatience. But not just impatience with one another, I think it's also true that it plays out in impatience with ourselves, because maybe you feel like the broken fig tree right now. Maybe you don't feel very fruitful. If anything, maybe you feel worthless, or you feel suddenly out of place. Who of us feels productive in a pandemic? Maybe something horrible has happened to you, or you've been struggling with something shameful, some, some sin that you just can't seem to put off, and you feel, you feel like a lost cause. You feel like, I had a, a friend who put it this way one time, is, is this it? Is this who I am? Is this all I'm ever going to be? Now, I think sometimes we often feel this way because we do live in a culture where it's never been easier to compare ourselves to someone else who appears very fruitful and very successful. I don't know if this is unique to me and my own personality, but it's so easy for me to be on any, any platform of social media and immediately do that thing that I've, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Anne Lamont, which says, never compare your insides to someone else's outsides. And I feel like, what is social media but that? Where I am constantly comparing my insides to other people's outsides. There was an article, an interesting situation that happened this past year before the pandemic where uh, this 
essentially a, a fitness influencer on Instagram quit the game. She had millions of followers, but she just decided that she was killing herself. And there was an article written by this uh, writer, Jessica Knoll in the New York Times, just about the bane of diet culture, just one way this plays out. And here's what she says about it. The way that, that, that we literally, these influencers, but not just them, they're follow- those who are influenced. My wife and I have a running joke now. I've been influenced, right? I've, I've read something or I saw something and I bought it or I did it because I was influenced. And here's what she wrote about it. She said, the diet industry is a virus and viruses are smart. It has survived all these decades by adapting, but it's as dangerous as ever. In 2019, dieting presents itself as wellness and clean eating, duping modern feminists to participate under the guise of health. When you have to deprive, punish, and isolate yourself to look good, it is impossible to feel good. I was at my sickest and loneliest when I appeared my healthiest. That was from a quote from the woman who ended up quitting her influencing on Instagram. That's just one way it plays out. There are so many. And we can feel like the broken fig tree And so we cut, we isolate, we drink, we smoke, we fast, we diet, we obsessively work out, we obsessively track our calories, anything, anything to numb the pain of feeling unworthy and of feeling unloved. And I think when we talk about that feeling, we're really talking about shame, the shame that sin releases on us and unleashes on us. Shame, you know, it makes us live in the world of shoulds. I should look this way, or I should be this way, or I should be free from the sin by now, or I should, I should, I should, I should have, I should not have, I should have never, and we're crushed by that weight of shame, the weight of should. Yeah, I think about the, a time in my own life. I was my freshman year thinking about we're trying to gear up for whatever RUF is going to look like in the fall, and it's going to be different, a lot more virtual things. And, but I was thinking back to my own freshman year, and there was this moment where I was a Christian. I became a Christian my freshman year of high school, and I was that kid who had a pretty, pretty radical. I mean, to me, it was a radical. I guess what conversion is not radical, but you know, I'd grown up in a Christian home, but just knowing Jesus really changed my life. And had an incredible high school experience. Part of it was I went to the school I loved. Part of it was I had this youth group that I loved. And then I got to Carolina, and I have never felt more alone in my life. I just was not ready, was not prepared for college, uh, for the bigness of it, the loneliness of it, the strangeness of it. And I remember going to, at the time, FCA was a big campus ministry on campus. And I remember going and and feeling so distant from God because I think I, you know, we could say too, we, we get impatience, we get impatient with the Lord. We don't understand his work in our lives and we don't understand how he can let things happen or let us feel certain ways. And I was frustrated with him and, and not on speaking terms really with him. And, and I remember being at this FCA and this was when ministry still did skits. I don't know if that's a thing anymore, but they did this skit that just drove me crazy. I think it was a combination of we had sung, open the eyes of my, my heart, Lord, and that chorus just repeats, I think, 30 times, you know, on end. So I was already feeling cynical about that because I was thinking, no, Lord, I don't want you to open the eyes of my Lord. I don't even know what you're doing in my life. And then they did this skit. And this whole idea of the skit was taking the phrase from Scripture, the joy of the Lord is my strength. 
And I remember just leaving so discouraged and so depressed. And then years later, I I thought back on that skit. and, And the way that I received it at the time was I thought the Christian life was I need to I need to be strong. The Lord, the joy of the Lord makes me strong and I can be strong for him and then feel his joy. And as I learned more about the gospel, which is not that, when I learned more about grace, I finally understood, no, Sammy, what, what, what that is saying is that it is the Lord's joy over us in our brokenness, in our struggle, in our weakness, that is our strength. The gospel that says you are far worse than you know yourself to be. And yet you are deeply forever loved because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. I mean, at the time, I remember, and I've said this before, but you know, I was the king of the WWJD bracelet. I mean, I had matching color, I had matching outfit, you know, I had the, the khaki one, I had a black one, I had a red one. I mean, I had, I had them all. And I think that to me was Christianity was, all right, emulate Jesus, be like Jesus. Which is, of course, of course God is doing that. He's making us more like Jesus. But I've, the thing that stuck with me is like that what I needed, what I need is a WJHD bracelet, what Jesus has done for me. Because that's our strength. What Jesus has done, not what I'm doing or not doing, but the focus being on what Jesus has done for me. That's that old line. I want to say it's from a Richard Sibbs line. I'm not sure, but for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. And that's what I want to do next is just think about not just the violence of our impatience, but I want to think for just a little bit about the patience of God's grace, because I think there are two keys to understanding this parable. The first is an image and the second a word. First, the image and the image is manure, fertilizer, making sure the soil is good, that the roots are nourished. And this is God's work in our lives. This is why it's painful, is this getting down to the roots of our lives and nourishing them with patient grace. And sometimes, can we be honest, we don't love that. We don't love to face our pain. We don't love to look at the past. We don't love to go down to the roots. And we also don't love that God's work is slow. That God wastes no time and uses even what seems like a waste in his own time, which means that we're all a work in progress and God's joy is in the work as much the progress. And so I think where you or I get so impatient with ourselves and so frustrated, we can look by faith to the face of our Heavenly Father and we find not a frown, not a scowl, but patient joy, patient love, patient grace, patient care, patient work. And sometimes we need to be reminded that even when it feels like nothing is happening, God is still at work. He is not done with us yet. I think about a time, it was really right around that freshman year I mentioned, um, I think that same year I went to see, so part of how my Christian journey went is my junior year of high school, I had the best youth minister ever, and then he ended up moving that year to Birmingham, Alabama, and I was devastated because he really was like a father figure to me. 
But I went that, my freshman year of college to go see him in Birmingham to visit his family. I was really close with his family, his kids and his wife. And so I think spring break that year, I went and saw them, spent some time with them. And one of the things that we did that I'll never forget this moment where he was pretty handy. Like he was the kind of guy, his name was Mark Yoder. He's actually back in Sumter now, uh, pastoring a church. But he was the kind of guy that could build things. And that was not in my, my toolkit. And he said, Sammy, why don't you come with me? We're, we're building a little stage for the youth group. Why don't you come help me? And I was like, mm, you sure? You've known me a while. He's like, yeah, come on. So we go, we get the stuff from Home Depot, and then we go set it all up in this big youth room. And then he kind of starts telling me what to do. And y'all, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'll never forget, like, I was hammering this one thing, and I went to hammer, and I just completely missed the nail. You know, I just missed it, like, not just once, like 10, 20 times, just could not get it. And I kept thinking, he, at some point, he's going to be like, here, just stop, let me take over. And he didn't. He just sort of gently came around me and said, here, let me, let me, you know, do it, try this. And it was one of those moments where, you know how this works. Again, someone for me who was so patient with me. And I have to tell myself, it's, it's like that, uh, that letter that Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote. Remember that, if you've ever heard the story of the kid who wrote him a letter, or the, the concerned mom wrote him a letter and said, I'm concerned, he, my son loves Narnia. And I'm afraid he loves Aslan more than Jesus. And Lewis, who took the time to respond, wrote the mom back and said, I want you to know that if he, what he loves about Aslan, he really loves about Jesus. And that was a moment like that for me. The gentleness and the patience of Mark as I'm failing, struggling with this hammer what I love about that moment is it's just a window into the heart of Jesus, whose patience for us is infinite, whose patience with us is endless. And the second is a word, that, that, the image, manure, the fertilizer, the slowness, the slow work. The second is a word, it's a phrase really. The vine dresser in Jesus' story says, let it alone. It's an interesting phrase. It is the Greek word, office, and it also commonly means to forgive. And it's important because it's the same word that Jesus uses as he makes his way to Jerusalem and he becomes like those Galileans and his, his disciples had just mentioned and he's crucified under Pontius Pilate and he's hanging on the cross outside of the camp where the garbage and manure was taken away from the city and the crowd is yelling, crucify him, crucify him, cut him down. And he says a staggering prayer. Father, Afas, let them alone. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, if you think about it like this, the most fruitful fig tree to ever live being cut down as if he were the broken one, the barren one, the lifeless one. There's a quote by Peterson who really nails it. I'm just going to read it because I can't say it better. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, The violence intended for the fig tree is deflected by the gardener's let it alone. The violence visited on Jesus is countered by Father forgive them. For those of us up to our necks in manure, 
which is to say, up to our necks in forgiveness. It is perhaps important to note that the forgiveness Jesus prayed for us was not preceded by any confession or acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the crucifixion crowd or any of us since. Preemptive forgiveness. Jesus prays that we be forgiven before we have any idea that we even need it, for they know not what they do. No preconditions. Amazing grace. It makes me think of Paul in Romans 2, where he says, for it is the the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I'll close with this, a story that's always stuck with me, thinking about the kindness and how kindness is what leads us to repentance and change. And I have a friend who had a friend in college who had gotten pretty deep into the drug scene, in fact, into the crack scene. And he'd grown up in a Christian home, I think even in the PCA, and of course the parents were concerned and they played the dance where they were always trying to figure out, where is my son? He, he is dying, you know, in the stranglehold of addiction. And my friend tells a story where the dad had come to town, it was, this was in Chattanooga, I believe, and no one knew where the son was. Um, the son was nowhere to be found, and the pain of, of the father just wanting to make sure his son was alive and trying to help his son. And but the son feeling like feeling the shame of his sin and not, you know, not not wanting to be near his parents because he thought he was going to get their judgment. He thought he was going to get what he didn't want. And the way the story goes is finally the father, through the tip of a friend, finds him in this essentially just a crack house. And he's the son is hears his father at the door as he's making his way. And, and the son pretends he's just going to be passed out. He doesn't want to face his father, doesn't want to face what he's done. And the way that my friend tells the story is the father goes into the room and and the son is pretending again to be passed out. And what the father does is he simply kneels by the bed and he kisses his son on his forehead. And then he leaves. And my friend's friend said that was the moment where I knew I could come home. That was the moment where I knew the patient love of my parents was going to see me through this. And I think that's what we have in this weird parable this morning. Is the patient, can we say it, the kisses of God's grace that we don't deserve. We deserve to be cut down. And yet what we get in Jesus is infinite grace that is ever patient. So let's take heart in that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that what sometimes seems too good to be true is true. It's our hope. It's the hope of the cross. It's the hope of your son, Jesus. And we thank you And Lord, would you melt our hearts by your kindness? Would you change us? Lord, we we know there are places we long and need to be changed and we can't do it ourselves. We know that. Or if we don't know that, would you show us? But would you bring the hope of your patience to bear in our hearts this morning? We need it. We're desperate for it. Would you do it in your goodness and your kindness? We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Let Your Heart Be Broken.